Okay, so we're reading from starting at Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favour in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said and Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he neither rose nor trembled before him he was filled with wrath against Mordecai Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with, with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing, nothing's been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, 
and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then the king said to him in hurry, Take the robes and the horse, as you have just said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favour in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is the word of the Lord. And thank you, Fiona. That has a... We've worked you hard um, the last few weeks reading Esther. She had to read Esther 1 and 2 as well, which I think is nearly as long as, as well as those three chapters, but um, you get yourself a drink now and just relax um, after that. Um, now, knowing who's in charge 
really matters sometimes, doesn't it? Knowing who's in charge really matters sometimes. Like when you're on an expedition climbing a mountain and the mist and the fog descends around you. It's important to know who's in charge. Who's the one who knows the way, even when you don't? Who's the one who can lead you to safety? You're lying on a hospital bed awaiting life-saving surgery. It's vitally important in that moment that you know who is in charge, who it is who will be performing the surgery. You're going through a, a global pandemic. It's important to know who's in charge, who is the one making the big decisions, decisions that impact my life. Who's the one who says when it's safe for restrictions to be lifted again or when it's safe for my business to open up? or when I can have friends in my home again. Knowing who's in charge really matters sometimes. And we want to know that the one who is in charge, they know what they are doing, and they have our best intentions at heart. Because knowing that is what instills confidence. Knowing that, it gives us hope for the future. It brings a peace, even when we're going through difficult and testing times. As I mentioned earlier, we've been studying through the book of Esther the last four weeks. We came to Esther chapter four last week, and now we've read five to eight. And this is a book, a story, where God is never mentioned. His name doesn't appear once. It's almost like he is entirely absent. But here's the thing that the writer has been teaching us. Here's what we are to learn from this book. The big idea is that with God, the presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. The presence of absence is not the same as the absence of presence. Even when God seems absent, his mighty hand is in all things. He's the one who is in charge of every moment, in every place, at all times. And it matters that we know this. It matters for us to know this. It mattered for Esther and Mordecai and the people of God to know this, but it matters for us here today in Belfast as well. Because there are times in life when it feels like we are on our own. When it feels like God is distant, absent even from our lives. There are times when the darkness descends around us and we don't know how we're going to be able to keep going. There are times when the road ahead of us seems obscure and seems uncertain. And the book of Esther is here to teach us that in those moments, in the darkness, in the uncertainty, God is still with his people. God is still in control and he is working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Esther is helping us to know who is really in charge of this universe and of our lives. Now we're into the main drama of the story. That's why we've read from chapters five to eight today in this big chunk. Because we're going to see how so far in this story, we've had nine years pass from chapter one to chapter four. But here, we have the drama unfolding in just two days, 48 hours. So it's really significant what's going on here. 
But so far in our story, if you haven't been with us, here's what has happened. We've seen God's people, Esther and Mordecai and other Jews, living in this vast Persian empire. And Esther, one of those Jews, she has been uh, promoted or or she's been uh, throned as as the queen of this nation. And Mordecai, he is her legal guardian. He works in Susa, the citadel, the capital. And there's a man who hates Mordecai. His name is Haman. We heard about him in the story as we read. And basically, Haman has manipulated the king into uh, agreeing to an edict which will wipe out the entire Jewish nation. A genocide of the Jews. All of God's people, including Esther and Mordecai, will be gone in 11 months' time. And Mordecai, he tells Esther when he hears this news that she must use her position as queen to intervene for the people. That's what we saw in chapter 4. In chapter 4, it finished with the cliffhanger of all cliffhangers, with Esther saying, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It's brilliant storytelling, and it leaves us waiting with bated breath. And this is where we pick up the story today. Now, I said, notice how, how the clock slows down, so it's really crucial, these events. But I w- want you to also notice another thing. Notice all the reversals that happen in our story today in these chapters. How the tables are turned. Something to bear in mind. So, our episode opens in chapter 5 with Esther putting on her royal robes. She's dressed to impress. And the idea is to get noticed by the most important man in the room, the king, sitting on his throne. Now, we need to understand how dangerous this is for Esther. It's a a really terrible thing for her to enter into the presence of the king uninvited. It's worthy of death. And the tension is building as we open in chapter 5. The king sees her. How is he going to react? We hold our breath in expectation, but there's relief in verse 2. She wins favor in his sight, and he extends the golden scepter for her to touch. Now notice as well how the king addresses her as Queen Esther. She's called Queen Esther 14 times in this book from this point onwards, and and 13 of them happen after chapter 4, after this point. So there's a shift taking place here. And the king asks Queen Esther, what do you want? Whatever it is, even up to half my kingdom, and it's yours. He's in a good mood, this king. He's saying, try me. Anything you want, Esther. And we're all saying, go for it, Esther. This is your big moment. Seize the day. But to our surprise, she says in verse 4, if it please the king, not save my people, but come to a feast that I have prepared for you and for Haman. The scene cuts to this unlikely dinner party with the king, the queen, And Haman, they eat, they drink, they have a great time. And the king turns to Esther again for the second time and he says, what is your wish, Esther? Anything you want. And we're thinking, go for it, Esther. This is it. This is your time. But she surprises us again and she invites them to yet another dinner party the next day. And as the tension mounts and as things start to unfold here, we're asking, what's the big plan, Esther? What are you doing here? Do you even know what you're doing? In verse 9, we see Haman, the villain of this story. He heads home and he is in good spirits. He's joyful and he's glad of heart, the writer says. He's had a day to remember Haman. 
But his mood quickly changes when he sees Mordecai, his enemy. And true to form, Mordecai doesn't rise or he doesn't tremble before Haman, and that really ticks Haman off. Because what matters most to Haman is receiving people's praise and respect. And when he doesn't get it from Mordecai, he's filled with rage. But he restrains himself because he knows that Mordecai and his people's day of destruction is in the diary already. Their day is coming. Now, it's often said that we see who people really are behind closed doors at home. And if that's true, well, Haman comes across as the most self-absorbed and conceited man, doesn't he? He gathers his friends and his family around for the ultimate in boring evenings. He gloats about himself for the entire night, recounting the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, as if his wife needed to hear this again. All the promotions and the honor he's received from the king. He is a man on top of this empire, and he wants everyone to know about it. He's not just a monumental name dropper, though, but he's also the most oblivious third wheel ever, isn't he? Queen Esther had no one else to have feast with the king except me. And we're doing it again tomorrow. How important must I be? A romantic meal with the king and the queen, and I get to go too. Haman is all about himself, oblivious to everyone else around him. His world revolves around him. And we're meant to laugh at Haman. He is a pompous fool. But as we laugh, we're to begin to see something of ourselves in him as well. Because I'm so often worried about what people think of me. I'm so often motivated by the praise and recognition of others in this world too. The desires of Haman's self-absorbed heart are so often the desires of mine as well. But even with all that, Haman is still not happy because Mordecai is stealing his joy. And his wife and his friends say, well, why don't you just get rid of him now? Why not build a massive gallows, 50 cubits high? That's about 75 foot high. And in the morning, go to the king and tell him to have Mordecai hanged on it. And then you can go and you can feast with the king and enjoy yourself. And this sounds like the perfect plan to Haman. So he gets the gallows built. And at the end of chapter five, it looks like things are going from bad to worse. Mordecai is doomed in the morning. God's people are still facing destruction. And we're left questioning Esther's wisdom here. What is she doing? What is God doing? But it just so happens that on that very night, the king is tossing and turning in his bed, unable to get any sleep. It actually says in the original translation, sleep was taken from him. Who is taking the king's sleep, we might ask? This is one of those just-so-happened moments in, those, in this book that no human could have orchestrated or planned. The king can't sleep, and in his vanity, he asks for the Persian version of, you know, the big red book from This Is Your Life? He wants someone to come and read him a bedtime story from this book. And they come with the book, and they ask, which bit should we read, your majesty? Any old bit you choose, he says. And they just so happen to open up this big book at the one page which tells of Mordecai saving the king's life. Remember from chapter 2? 
It was recorded all those years ago, but it's long since been forgotten about. And the king says, ah, yes, I remember that, as if he does. How did I reward that man, Mordecai? Persians were all about lavish rewards. They, uh, they wanted to incentivize others in the kingdom to live and to serve for the kingdom. So how did I reward this Mordecai, he says. And they say in verse 3, well, nothing, your majesty, nothing was done. And the king says, who's in the court? Which basically means I need to make a decision here and I can't think for myself. So who is around to help me? And it just so happens that Haman has got the early training to work at that morning. He's looking to make use of his new gallows. And the king says, invite him in. Tell me, Haman, verse 6. Tell me, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now You can imagine how Haman feels here. Oh, he's, he's just filled with pride and joy because surely the king is talking about me. We get this fascinating insight into Haman's heart. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? In verse 8 and 9, look at his response. It reveals what's really in Haman's heart because he thinks this is all for himself. Let the king's robes and the king's horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. It's brilliant, isn't it? Haman is like an overinflated balloon. And watch how the writer just takes a big pin and punctures that balloon in the most ironic way. Because look what the king says in verse 10. Brilliant Haman. I am so glad that you have come in early this morning and I got to ask for your advice. Hurry, quick, go and get the robes and the horse and you, you be the one to do everything you said for the man Mordecai, the Jew. Can you imagine the look on poor Haman's face? He's got no choice here. He has to do what the king has commanded and you can see Mordecai sitting at his desk in the king's gate, wearing the usual suit, plain suit that he always wears to work. He's got a cup cup of coffee in his hand, just a normal day. But then all of a sudden, he's swept off. He's paraded around the city in glory in these robes with his crown in his head. It's a complete transformation. And I love verse 12. Look what it says about Mordecai. Then, Mordecai, in his humility, he just goes back to work, back to the king's gate, puts on his suit again, and gets back to things. And Haman, ah, oh, the poor lad, he has had a shocker of a day. He runs home with his tail between his legs, and he tells his wife and his friends what's happened. And at the end of chapter 6, we get this fascinating insight, because they see the writing on the wall for Haman. They know what's ahead for him because if Mordecai is of the Jewish people, then they know this isn't going to end well for Haman. It's always interesting when we see people who are not part of God's people, but they've begun to realize something about the God of the Bible. We see it with Rahab. We see it with Balaam in the book of Numbers. Seeing that in the end, when all is said and done, that God is the one who is victorious. That God is the one who will win the day for his people. 
Haman is destined for downfall and things are unraveling for him. And at the start of chapter seven, at the final dinner party, Esther senses that her time has come. The winds have changed. The king, he asks her for the third time, Queen Esther, what do you want? And because this is the third time, she knows he cannot go back on his word now. He said this publicly to her. Everyone has seen it. And so Queen Esther says, please spare my life, O king, and the lives of all my people. You see the the echo of the edict in chapter three? Destroy kill, annihilate. These are the very words that Haman used back then. And the king is astonished. He's heard this before though. He can't believe what he's heard. And he says, who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And here's Esther's big moment. She sticks the knife in. A foe and enemy. This wicked Haman. Imagine Haman shrinking back in his seat, wanting the ground to swallow him up. He's nowhere to hide, and he's terrified before the king and the queen. And the king rises from his wrath, and he he heads out into the palace gardens in his rage, because he has a problem here himself. He promoted Haman. He gave him his seal of approval to this edict. He is complicit in all this. And Haman, in his desperation, well, he loses all sense of what is lawful here because he stays to beg for his life from Queen Esther. But this is a massive error of judgment because Persian law stated that no man other than a eunuch was allowed to be left alone with a woman from the king's harem. And even in the king's presence, no one was allowed within seven steps of a royal concubine. The penalty for this was death. And as the king comes back in, maybe it's because Haman has had a bit too much to drink, but he's fallen before Queen Esther, fallen to where she is lounging. You see the great reversal here? Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman, and now Haman is bowing down to Queen Esther. And the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Now, you can't seriously think that Haman is going to violate his bride here. But he knows that Haman has given him a convenient resolution to his dilemma because now he can get him for treason. He knows now that he can dispatch of Haman, he can save Esther and Mordecai, and he can reverse this edict. And in that very moment, security, they handcuff Haman. And then one of them, in one of those humorously dark moments in this book, Harbona pipes up, and this is what he says. I don't know if you've heard, O king, but there's a gallows, a pretty big one at that. And it's one that Haman actually prepared for Mordecai, the guy who saved your life. It's not too far away as well. It's just in Haman's back garden. No one's been hanged or impaled on it yet. I thought you might just like to know. Hang him on it, rages the king. And after that, chapter 7 ends with the wrath of the king being abated. Another of the great reversals that we see in this book, the instrument of execution which Haman intended for Mordecai becomes the instrument of execution for himself. And on that day, King Ahasuerus gives Queen Esther the house of Haman, his wealth, his business, his estate. And humble Mordecai is exalted before the king. Whatever promotion he missed out on before, he doesn't miss out on it now. 
And Esther sets Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now instinctively, we all breathe a huge sigh of relief and we relax. And we might expect that to be the end of the story, but we need to remember that there is still drama to come. That edict which has gone out across the Persian Empire, setting a date for the destruction of the Jews, it's an edict that still stands. But these events, they only serve as another reminder for us that even though God seems absent, he is the one who is in charge of all things. He is the one who's in charge of the empire of the world here. Look at all those just-so-happened moments that happen in these chapters. Think of all those ironic reversals. The writer wants us to say to ourselves, these cannot be a string of coincidences. There has to be something else going on here. Someone else directing and orchestrating everything that takes place. And do you see who it is? Remember who Esther and Mordecai belong to. Remember who Esther prayed to in chapter 4. The God of their people is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who made covenant promises to his people to be faithful to them, to remember them, to rescue them from affliction in their time of need. Mordecai knew this. Remember what he said in chapter 4, verse 14? Salvation will come, Esther. God will surely rescue his people. There's no doubt about it. I don't know where deliverance will come from. It may be this time. It may be that the very reason you're on the throne, Esther, is for such a time as this. But even if it's not, God's plans and purposes for his people can and will not ever be thwarted. God is in charge and he will never fail in keeping his covenant. Salvation will come. And this story of salvation in the book of Esther merely serves as a signpost to us today to the greatest story of salvation the world has ever known. The gospel of Jesus Christ. God fulfilling his covenant promises to us in Jesus. Look at the parallels in the story of Esther and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Esther went into the very presence of the king as a representative for her people in chapter 5 and 6 to plead for their salvation. And so too does Jesus act as our representative before God, entering into the very throne room of heaven on our behalf to plead for our salvation. And just as a death, the death of Haman, allowed the wrath of the king to be abated at the end of chapter 7, opening the way for God's people to be rescued from destruction, so too does the death of Jesus Christ satisfy God's wrath against sin. His death offers the way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to escape God's judgment. And in the same way we see a public spectacle being made of Haman, the enemy of God's people, hanged on his own gallows for all to see, so too, At the cross of Jesus Christ, God made a public spectacle of the devil, our great enemy. On that day, the devil was defeated and the powers of darkness were broken forever. And just as we see humble Mordecai vindicated and exalted to the highest place of honor in the Persian empire, the one who the king delights to honor, 
So too in the gospel, we see Jesus Christ resurrected to life again after three days in the tomb. The one who God delights to honor, vindicated and exalted to the highest place in the universe. Given the name that is above every name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Esther points us to the gospel and it shows us who's really in charge of this world today. It's Jesus who sits enthroned in power in the universe, governing all things. It's Jesus who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And it matters for us to know this, to believe this. Because if all this is true, if Jesus really is in charge, it will change everything It changes everything about the way we live today and it changes everything about the hope we have for tomorrow. If Jesus is in charge, but we choose to reject him, then we should be warned by the downfall of Haman. His downfall is a picture of everyone who turns against God and his people. If we reject Jesus as Lord, if we turn away from his rule and authority in our lives, then we will face God's judgment. We too, like Haman, will experience death. Not just death in this life, but death forever in eternity. But this is where the story of Esther gives us great hope, points us to the hope of the gospel. Because in Esther, we see God's people experience salvation. Those who choose to identify with God and his people, they are saved. We're going to see that in chapter 8. Many of the people in this Persian empire who weren't even Jews, they, for fear of the Jews, they turned to God and experienced salvation. It's the same for us because through acknowledging and accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we experience salvation too. Jesus' death on the cross offers us forgiveness. Jesus' resurrection to life offers us the hope of new life instead of death. We are to heed the warning in this passage, but we are to see that the way for our story to be changed is by trusting in God for salvation, accepting Jesus as our Savior and Lord, saying, Jesus, I see that you're the one who is on the throne in this universe. And so I want you to be on the throne in my life as well. Not me anymore. No longer me who's in charge of my life, but you. I'm not living for myself. I'm living for you to please you, to obey you, to magnify you, to tell others of you. I'm going to live my life pursuing the things that matter to you. Love, justice, peace, forgiveness. I'm going to listen to you and your word above everyone else in life. And I'm going to trust you through thick and thin, through all that life throws at me. Why? Why do we do this? Well, it's because if Jesus gave himself fully for me, to have me, to save me, then the only right response is for me to give myself fully to him. We say with Paul the words of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
If Jesus is in charge, it changes everything. Everything about the way we live today and everything about the hope we have for tomorrow because we live now knowing the end of this story. We know the end of our story, the end of history. And our future is secure in Jesus. We are eternally secure because sin and death have been defeated and God has won the victory for us. Nothing can thwart his plans. It doesn't mean that life right now is going to be plain sailing. It doesn't mean that we're going to be free from suffering and pain and discomfort in this life now. But what it does mean is that through all those things, we can trust God. That his plans and his purposes for us are for our good. That he is working out all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. All of life has meaning and purpose because all of it is preparing us for future glory. We can trust that we have a God who is in complete control, who knows everything about us, who cares for us, who is always faithful to his people. And we can trust that he is powerful enough to sustain us and strengthen us through everything that we experience in life. Jesus is the one who is in charge of this universe. The question is this morning, is he in charge of your life? Our only hope in life and in death is that we belong to him, that we trust him. So will you trust him today as your savior and as Lord? Let me pray for us now. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the encouragement that we get from passages like this, passages where we can read it and think, where, where are you even God in this? We can think that even in our lives as well. It mirrors the way we maybe feel even today, wondering where you are, what good you are doing in our lives right now, Lord. But we can trust that you're with us, that you're always with us, that you're always for us, and that you're working all things out for the good of those who love you. Lord, we might not understand how that is right now or, or how you are working right now in your providence, but Lord, we thank you that you've given us in your word a picture of the future. You've shown us that in Jesus we are secure forever. Our salvation is secure because Jesus is in charge and he has won the victory. I pray that today that we would trust in you all the more. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who has not yet put their trust in you, I pray that today they would turn to Jesus, that they would say that it's no longer them who is in charge of their lives, but Jesus. Accept him as Savior and Lord and know the joy that there is today and the hope there is for the future. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' precious name. Amen.